Well, everybody, the Major League Baseball season has ended. And so, it's been a while. But let's do, for old time's sake, one final Joey Gowell update for the 2023 season. It's the Joey Gallo update. And let's remember the world champions this year were the Texas Rangers. Where did Joey Gallo start his career for his first seven seasons? Oh, no. Yes, the Texas Rangers. Oh, he missed out. Darn. And, yeah, we haven't done this in a long while, primarily because he hasn't played since September 5th. And he ended the season with 282 at-bats, 21 homers, 40 RBIs. He had a stolen base, which is kind of weird because he's not really a stolen base threat. But his batting average was 177. And the number of strikeouts he had, he broke that ratio. I told you guys earlier that historic ratio, I don't know how many people had ever gotten a strikeout Every two at-bats, or in other words, striking out 50% of the time, Joey Gallo did it. 142 strikeouts and 282 at-bats. And he hasn't been DFA'd yet. But I got good news. He improved his batting average this season from 160 to 177. So a 17-point improvement. Well, good for you, Joey Gallo. So now we can officially put this stupid gimmick to bed. This one will come up with more stupid gimmicks. Isn't that right, Greg? Oh, we got something planned for the winter months. <laughs> Stay tuned for that. Hey, show open. An anthology about the bad, the short-lived, and the forgotten shows and events in television history. This is... It was a thing on TV. Punisher! Control! Hey, before I change my mind! I give you Super Train! Episode 425, submission number 1069. Nice! We're talking about a show called Nice? No. I wish. Sorry. The Stranger. The Stranger aired on the ABC, that's the Australian Broadcasting Commission, from April 26, 1964 to July 25, 1965, for 12 episodes. Hey, that's three quarters of a crock block. 12 divided by 16 is three fourths. I bet you didn't know that unless you know math. But also, that 12 episodes is a whole four less than Uncle Croc's Block, the Hudson Brothers Razzle Dazzle Show, Schooled, J.J. Starbuck, Misfits of Science, the number of aired episodes of Salvage One, and Little Bush, and Tiger King, and probably hundreds of thousands of other shows. And it's the same number of episodes, The Stranger, as Loki. Oh, so one Stranger block is equal to a Loki block? Yes. By the way, Mike, I got a question. 
in Cleveland, have you ever encountered a man trying to sell you a jet ski? Once or twice. Did he ever say to you if you were interested in buying a jet ski? Wow. What trap am I falling into? Nothing. Hey, Chico, have you seen episode five of Loki yet? I have. Oh, it's a Loki thing. I thought it was okay. a stranger thing. Okay. Okay, let me explain the joke, okay? In episode five, they reveal that Owen Wilson's character was originally a jet ski salesman in Cleveland. You're amazed by that. You know what? You don't even have to uh, do the free trial of Disney Plus. Just look for the synopsis online. Do they sell it... jet skis in Cleveland? Of course. They... There's a giant fucking lake two miles away from here. Okay, didn't there really is. Okay. Yeah. Oh, also, let's remember what type of school I work at. Aviation and maritime. So, yeah, we deal with jet skis. Okay. Creepy opening music. Nineteen sixty-three. Doctor Who premieres the day after the assassination of John F. Kennedy, which is really weird considering it premiered the day after like a major news event. But that's besides the point. This show, Doctor Who, became an immediate smash in England. Well, actually, didn't it sort of start out slow and then just got ramped up with the second story involving exterminate exterminate oh yeah that is true that's all covered in that doctor who tv movie about the uh william hartnell era the adventure in space and time by the way if you ever find it buy it so okay doctor who it's a big smash in england so what do you do when there's a big smash on television you try to create a bigger smash by spinning it off True. Or you try and create a bigger smash by copying it. That's right. You decide everyone loves this show, so you decide if you're in another country and you're seeing what's going on in this country. You know what? We're going to make our own Doctor Who. With blackjack and hookers! That's actually going to factor into our next episode, but I'm getting ahead of myself. So this is Doctor Who with Australian blackjack and Australian hookers? Yeah. Well, well I, and that, seriously, I mean, I'm, I'm not trying to, to do any sort of, like, you know, double entendres there or some sort of, like, fancy speak, but it's it's basically Doctor Who with Australian blackjack and hookers. Pretty much. Only except for time traveling inside a British phone box. We just have an odd gentleman who says he has memory loss, but is actually an alien who is missioned to Earth 
What was he sent to Earth to do? Who knows? This story was created by, and all of the episodes were written by, a man by the name of G.K. Saunders. He wrote it as a six-part radio series for the BBC in 1963, about a month and a half after Doctor Who premiered on the television side. And his treatise is, and I have this from Truth by Consensus Wikipedia, a schoolmaster finds an unconscious young man on his doorstep, sound familiar? Takes him in and looks after him. A friendship develops between the stranger and the headmaster's children, sound familiar? And their friends leading them to discover the stranger's secret. He is from another planet and has been sent to find a new home on Earth for his people. The stranger and fellow alien Varosa live in a society without books where they have to memorize everything. So, so far, this is just a very staid phone home strategy. We need a new home for our people. But then comes season two of the show, which just goes absolutely bat insane. The children have to enlist the help of the Australian Prime Minister when Peter is kidnapped by the alien, and a procession of intrigues eventually leads them to the alien's home planet of Soshunis. Unfortunately, there is not a final battle between Earth and Shosunis, where the Earthlings have to either drive the aliens back into space or into the ground. That would have been interesting. That is the crappiest name for a planet. Shosunis. What the hell kind of name is that? I have no idea. Anyway, the radio show, which aired on BBC Home Service, star David Spencer, not the gospel singer-songwriter that I went to college with, but David Spencer as the stranger, Adam Suisse. David Spencer, best known for being primarily a radio actor, but was also in Doctor Who once or twice. The early episodes, of course. But yeah, this is one of those shows that was created abroad to capitalize on the success of Doctor Who. We can't use a British phone box, but we can use an alien. And obviously, an alien's going to have a flying saucer. Because all the kids love flying saucers. So the ABC is thinking, Doctor Who, but make it the day the Earth stood still. Hold on a second. I got a question. Were the flying saucer ice cream sandwiches out by 1964? Was that later? Let me take a look. They could have done a tie-in with the flying saucer ice cream sandwiches. First thing I need to do is learn how to spell flying saucer. S-A-U-C-E-R. Okay. The flying saucer ice cream cookie sandwich. A fine Carvel product, by the way. I've got the year for it. 
1951. Oh, see? Missed opportunity. The ABC in Australia, they could have contacted Tom Corvell. He could have gotten it licensed to Australia. They could have done like a thing. You know, they could have done Reese's Pieces like 18 years early. Adam the Stranger is eating some ice cream. He puts some cookies on the ice cream. And then afterwards, you can have Tom Corvell like do a promo at the end saying, probably going to do a terrible Tom Corvell here. Our ice cream's pretty good. Please visit them. Thank you. I didn't know Tom Carvel sounded like Wilford Brimley. <laughs> I told you it was a terrible Tom Carvel, but that delivery was what he did in all those stupid promos he did. Now you know if this actually got sent to Australia, they could have had like Cookie Puss Mite. It could have been like Vegemite flavored ice cream in Cookie Puss form. Crocodile Cookie Puss. There you go. We're just like printing money for a Carvel at this point. Or even better. Crocodile Hunter Flying Saucer. Oh, too far. Too far, Greg. Too far. Bring it back. Bring it back. You hit a nerve there. So who is the stranger and who are the people who are around the stranger? Well, the ABC brought on a man by the name of Ron Hadrick to play Adam Sweeze. Ron Hadrick, a South Australian cricketer turned actor, best known on our hemisphere for Quigley Down Under, which I believe was a Tom Selleck joint. Yes, it was. Playing the role of Gene Walsh is Janice Dinnan, who, again, was in a whole lot of Australian productions, but died in the UK when she fell from a bus in 1974. It's a very sad story. Oh my god! Why did you have to mention that? It was a major bullet point in her bio on IMDb, okay? In the role of Bernard Walsh, we have Bill Levis, and aside from a couple of other movies in the 60s, this is as far as his movie career went. Time out. Is he any relation to Will Levis? Sadly, no. Oh. Hey, remember when Will Levis was a thing for about a week? You know, every time I hear Will Levis' name, I this is going to be the most obscure thing I probably have ever said on this podcast, and that's saying a lot. I think of, like, this commercial for, like, the Levitz furniture chain here in New York. Oh my gosh, that's deep. Yeah, that's it. You're living at Levitt. They had okay. So here's the thing: I lived out west for like my early life. They have the Levitt stores out there. They also had the Sam Levitt stores. Not to be confused. I'm surprised no one's done that joke for Will Levitt. Will you love it at Levitt? You love it at Levitt. I'm sure Chris Berman is writing that up right now. Playing Peter Cannon is Michael Thomas, who is also primarily known for just this one show. He was an Australian guy from that Australian thing in the 60s. As Mr. Walsh, we have John Fasson, who was in an episode of Home and Away, which has a bit of a cult following here in America, but also... Guys, 
He was the choral director in the Facts of Life Down Under. No, another reference to Facts of Life Down Under? What the heck? I hope he shared a scene with Tootie. Playing his wife, Mrs. Walsh, Jessica Node was also in a whole lot of Australian stuff, including two Australian shows with fan bases here in America, Home and Away, and Neighbors. Everybody, I totally screwed that name. Everybody loves good neighbors. Thank you. Thank you, Greg. And sometimes you'll see Chris Hemsworth and Margot Robbie. That's when good neighbors become good friends. Everybody! I was afraid you were going to say that Jessica Note was also in The Facts of Life Down Under. And then as Professor Mayer, we have Owen Weingott, who is not in The Facts of Life Down Under, but was on 22 episodes of a show called Dynasty. Not that show. Another show. So, okay, let me get this clear. It's not the original or the CW reboot with Liz Gillies. Right. It is another show called Dynasty. And looking at his IMDb, he was also on another show called Riptide. No, there's no Tom Bray in this show. So he was in another Dynasty and another Riptide and another Hunter. What? Is he in all the American shows that had similar sounding titles in Australia? He was also in another show called Homicide. Now, time out. I got a question. Did Red Grundy make versions of all these shows that have similar names to the other? Why the hell not? Now, I'm taking a look to see if the Dynasty has a Red Grundy in it. and I'm guessing not. But Red Grundy was too busy stealing game shows, not uh, any other format. And rounding out the cast, we have Reg Livermore as Barossa. Reg, pretty much known for just this show, but he did play roles in various versions of Anything Goes, The Tempest, and The Pirates of Penzance. Ooh, The Pirates of Penzance. Not only did he play Frankenfurter in the original 1974 Australian cast of the Rocky Horror Show, he attended the same high school as Australian actors Adam Garcia, Andrew Johnson, Hugo Weaving, writer Stuart Beatty, radio host John Laws, and acting, singing, dancing guy Hugh Jackman. That's pretty much the cast of The Stranger. So... What kind of adventure would the stranger and his newfound family get into? You want to talk about him? Wait, hold on a second. I think we're going to do a first year. We're going to do a time travel thing. We're going to have the Chico in the past recap these episodes. And then get back to us in the present. Yes, because I don't know if you see my Zoom background, but... Yeah, for... Those who are not on the video, which is everybody. Everybody but us three, for clarity. Yes. Chico's background is the tortoise. So he borrowed Ed Begley's tortoise. 
we asked Ed to borrow the tortoise for like a little bit. And so we asked present Chico to go to tell past Chico, hey, we need you to recap these episodes for us. Oh, I think we need to actually talk about your background, too, because apparently uh, Aurora Borealis is happening in your kitchen. That's true. I got some steamed hams from Burger King, which is, as we all know, a regional dialect to upstate New York. But you're a Long Island guy. He's close enough to Utica. What, two-hour drive, Greg? Three-hour drive? It's an Albany expression, thank you very much. Not a Utica expression, Mike. Get it straight. (laughs) Okay, let me communicate with my past self here. Episode 1. A mysterious stranger appears on the doorstep of the Walsh family's home one stormy evening. With no memory of his own name or how he came to be there, the family shelter him for the night, and he assumes the name Adam Sweeze. Impressed by his advanced linguistic skills and intelligence, Mr. Walsh offers Adam a teaching job. His teenage children, Bernie and Jean, along with their friend Peter Cannon, discover a strange communication device among Adam's possessions. Episode 2. Adam is away bushwalking in the Blue Mountains and the children break into his room again. They find books that they think are strange. He comes back and later he asks if they broke in. They say yes. He explains the books and says the device is a radio for local broadcasts and he has left it in the mountains where he stays. Bernard, one of the children, says that flying saucers were seen at Canley in the Blue Mountains the last weekend. Adam says he did not know this. The next weekend, he goes to Canley again. The children follow him on the next day's train. They're going to watch him. They go bushwalking and find labels from books from their school. They come across Suisse and then find a flying saucer ahead of them. A man comes out, sees them, and shouts out to Adam in a strange language. Episode 3 The children encounter Adam outside the flying saucer. Adam admits that the machine comes from his homeland. He admits he has not lost his memory, but he wanted to live amongst them to learn things. He brings out the man from the flying saucer and says he is the pilot, Varosa. He then uses a form of hypnosis to convince the children to come with him to his homeland. They all get in the flying saucer. The next thing you know, Mr. Walsh has reported the children is missing, and the police say they're just hiding. Mr. Walsh receives a letter from Jean, postmarked Venezuela, in which she says she cannot explain what has happened and will return, but she's not sure when. The letter was posted the day after they disappeared and took only four days to get to Australia. Meanwhile, the children have been transferred from the flying saucer to another machine, the mothership. Adam then tells the truth and tells a story about a planet where people lived, but an accident happened that poisoned the planet. When the planet, Shoshunis, was poisoned, clever people went to one moon and survived. 1,000 people wandered onto the moon for a few centuries looking for a suitable planet. There are now only 300 people. Later, Varosa explains about his first trip to Earth. Episode 4. 
The children are now on the moon and meet some of the survivors, including the female leader. So Shun reveals that Sinchi, Adam's real name, will take the children back to Australia with Barossa. After the children leave her presence, So Shun talks to the elders in a way that implies some menace to Earth. They all return in the flying saucer and when back home, the children tell their parents about what has happened. They do not believe them. The police arrive and question the children and the aliens. Sweeze advises he does not know how old he is as they have no concept of years. Adam and Verosa are arrested. Mr. Walsh contacts Professor Mayer, who speaks to the children. He advises that he will make arrangements so that the children can secretly take him to the flying saucer. The next day, they take the professor to the flying saucer, wearing blacked-out glasses so he does not know the location. Bernie shows the professor how the saucer works, and two uniformed police arrive. They have followed them. While Peter and Jean restrain the professor, Bernie pilots the saucer into the air. Episode 5 After taking off in the flying saucer, the children contact the Soshun and speak to her via a video phone. They tell her what has happened and ask for her help. She sends a guide ship to them. Meanwhile, the two police contact their superior, who contacts the RAAF. That's the Royal Australian Air Force. The captain advises the saucer is not theirs and they will act. The RAAF buzzes the flying saucer with jets. The police advise Mr. Walsh what has happened and that the security forces are now involved. The guide ship arrives. The pilot is transferred from the guide ship and takes over. The pilot cannot speak English. The RAAF pilot advises the captain that they lost the two ships at 54,000 feet. The professor and the children meet the Soshun and advises he will write letters for the children to post once they return to Earth. These will, he says, explain everything. The RAAF officers fly to Canberra and go to Parliament House to brief the Prime Minister. It is revealed that radar tracked the ships to 130 miles where they were joined by another larger vessel. They then went to 5,600 miles and then 50 to 60,000 miles where they landed on a small moon. The children return and are met by police and Colonel Nash from security. He questions the children. They tell him Professor Mayer has stayed on the Shoshunis to study them. Bernie advises the colonel that the Shoshunisi want to settle on Earth. Adam and Verosa escape from the police and ask Bernie to help hide them till he contacts the mothership to collect them. Episode 6. Bernie hides Adam and Verosa in the school's tower. The flying saucer lands at Idlewild Airport. Looks like it was really the ABC Gore Hill property, but whatever and Professor Mayer gets out. He is then taken away by some people in a large American car with UN stickers, and the saucer departs. The children are questioned by the police and Colonel Nash to find where Adam and Verosa are hiding. Professor Mayer is taken to the UN headquarters in New York and presents the case that the aliens be permitted to land on Earth. He advises that they want to share their knowledge with all nations. Mayer phones Mr. Walsh and speaks to Bernie saying he must stop the aliens leaving in the flying saucer. It arrives to collect them, and Bernie and Peter tell Adam and Verosa. The saucer leaves without them. Two police officers pass them all over to Nash and the chief inspector, 
Nash advises that Adam and Verosa will be sent by plane to New York. Episode 7. The news of the aliens has leaked and been published to the press in New York. U.S. Senator Anderson is involved. It is decided not to send Adam to New York for the time being. The Walsh's house is under siege by the press. It is decided to let Adam and Verosa stay in the school playhouse. Meanwhile, Peter is snuck out and is trying to contact the mothership via the radio. They hear him, but there appears to be some conflict going on, and they do not reply. Remember the radio, by the way? Professor Mayer flies to Sydney with his son, Edward. Apparently, a new male Soshun has been elected who says the aliens must come to live on Earth. This happened because the old Soshun wanted Earth to invite them to come. The flying saucer lands in the school grounds. The pilot hypnotizes Peter and makes him enter the saucer. And they leave. Episode 8. A very rich man, Rudolf Lindenberger II, comes to see Professor Mayer and tries to talk him into letting him get some sort of access to the aliens for monetary gain. Mayer goes with his son... Sorry about that. Chico's computer might have been playing havoc there. He meant to say, Mayer goes to Sydney with his son. Back in Sydney... There are people protesting outside the Walsh home, some for the aliens, some against. The flying saucer with Peter on board lands on the alien moon. The pilot takes him into a room in a cave where the new Soshun is in charge. The old Soshun comes in and talks to Peter. She explains what has happened and that she does not agree with the new Soshun's plan about Earth. That this is to invade the Earth if need be. She says they have one weapon. The new Soshun says he is keeping Peter on the moon as a hostage. Lindenberger buys all the other seats on the plane and flies to Sydney with Mayer and his son. Once in Sydney, they go to the Walsh house and then are advised that they are to drive to Parks, where the radio telescope is located. When a police sergeant goes to talk to Adam, he is hypnotized. The senior constable draws his gun on Verosa, who hypnotizes him. Adam advises that they are leaving. Adam then hypnotizes the children and Edward Mayer. Lots of hypnotism on this episode. Adam and Verosa attempt to escape, but Verosa is shot by a policeman. And Adam hijacks a car. Episode 9. Verosa is taken to hospital. Colonel Nash's driver comes back and says he took Nash somewhere. This was really Adam. He too was hypnotized. Everyone leaves the Walsh house, and they are followed by Lindenberger's man, Blake, as well as media cars. Out in the bush, they swap cars while police pull over the media and Blake. Adam catches a train to Parks. The car with everyone in it goes via Mudgy to Parks. The Shoshun says he wants to write a letter to the Prime Minister and will send it back with Peter to Parliament House. The Shoshun sends his thoughts to Peter to put in the letter. They arrive at the park's radio telescope and Professor Mayer goes inside with Nash. A technician pulls apart the radio to try and discover the frequencies it uses so they can use the telescope to talk to the Shoshunis moon. The telescope is used to find the moon and seems to locate it. Episode 10. Defense authorities in Australia have located the satellite Shoshunis using the park's radio telescope and Mayer is shocked to learn nuclear weapons will be used if hostilities arise. 
Adam communicates to Jean through a dream which directs her to a post office in Bunyul, a deserted mining town outside Parks. Jean decides to sneak out of the Parks compound to find Adam. Meanwhile, Peter has been left comatose in the courtyard at Parliament House with a letter from the Soshun. This is taken to the Prime Minister's office, while Peter is taken to hospital and then Sydney. Jean locates the post office and inside the postmaster has a letter for her. The letter has a map and instructions that Adam is hiding in a shed in the Bunyola showground. Bernie and Edward meet Jean and they locate Adam's hideout. Here the children learn that Verosa was shot and captured by the police. Adam asks them to bring the radio, which he can use to speak to the little ship, one of which is always waiting nearby. They agree to get it. Lindenberger's man, Blake, follows them and overhears the conversation with Adam. Professor Mayer rebukes Colonel Nash about how they plan to treat the Soshunites. Nash says they will be telling the Soshunites what to do. The letter from the Soshun says that Peter's coma is a demonstration of their power. Edward tells his father about Verosa. Adam seems to sense that something has happened. Episode 11. Lindenberger's henchman attempts to steal Adam's communication device from Professor Mayer at gunpoint, leading to Blake chasing Bernie across and over the radio telescope's dish. The dish is tilted right over so Bernie can step off while Blake is left hanging vertically at the top. Bernie runs away and returns the device to Adam, who attempts to contact the Soshun. Mayer and the other children go to Adam, too. The flying saucer receives the signal and is heading towards them. Blake is let off the dish and finds Adam. He tape records Mayer, explaining that Peter was returned to Earth in a coma with a hostile threat from the Soshun, and that the radio telescope is now being used to track Soshunists so that it can be destroyed. Mayer volunteers to visit Shoshunis to act as a human shield in case of an attack from Earth. Adam also reveals that only a Shoshunite scientist can bring Peter out of his coma. Blake goes back to Lindenberger with the tape recording. Lindenberger reveals that he had planned to take all the Shoshunites to an island, and when the moon was destroyed by the nuclear missiles, no one would have known that they were on Earth. He says Mayer would also have been rich if he had played along. He decides to frame Mayer and make it appear that he was a traitor. He also intends for Blake to kidnap Adam before Nash arrives at the hideout and arrests Mayer and the children. Lindenberger plays the tape to Nash. Adam reveals to Mayer that they have a secret weapon of some sort. As the Shoshunite craft is landing, the henchmen and Blake arrive and kidnap Adam. However, Adam hypnotizes them and retrieves the radio from them. Mayer attempts to board the flying saucer but gets shot by Colonel Nash. The flying saucer takes off without Adam or Mayer. The final episode, episode 12. Colonel Nash takes the wounded Mayer and Adam in his car to Lindenberger. Mr. Walsh sneaks away and arrives in Canberra demanding a meeting with the Prime Minister advising him that the weapon that the Sosunites have is their moon. They intend to smash it into Earth if they are not given a place to live. Adam contacts the Soshun again and tells him to destroy the radio telescope. The Soshunites use radio or sound waves to damage the radio telescope and prevent it from tracking Shoshunists. Adam and Dr. Kamutsa, a representative of the Secretary General of the UN and some others, meet with the Prime Minister. 
the UN has delegated the role to negotiate to the Prime Minister. Adam uses the radio to speak to the Soshun and pass on the PM's request for a representative to visit the Soshun to discuss a peaceful and harmonious end to this squabble. The Soshun advises he will negotiate only with the children, Jean, Bernie, and Edward. The PM agrees to send the children with Dr. Kamutsa to Sushunis and tells Nash to make sure that the media know nothing of this till it is over. Adam advises that the children will be picked up from the radio telescope and the UN representative from Canberra. The children talk to the Soshun and Jean demands that first the Sushun must bring Peter out of his coma. He agrees to send a body healing scientist to Earth to fix Peter. Lindenberger offers the Prime Minister his private island as a settlement location for the Soshunites for his own gain, but is outmaneuvered by the Prime Minister, forced to relinquish control of the island. A settlement agreement is finally reached, but this is not shown. It is revealed by Adam that the moon could not have been crashed into the Earth successfully as it would have been smashed into small pieces when it came close, and it could never have left as it does not have enough energy to pull away from the Earth's gravity. The following day, Verosa and Adam are paraded down George Street to a civic reception held on the steps of Sydney Town Hall. Adam and Verosa arrive and sit with the Lord Mayor, the children, and Mr. Walsh at the top of the steps. The flying saucer, the small ship, arrives with the Soshun. The mayor welcomes the Soshunites to Sydney and Earth. Adam and Verosa climb into the flying saucer and take off, passing over the uncompleted Sydney Opera House. The Soshun stays behind. Well, thank you very much, Pat Chico, for those stellar recaps of all 12 episodes. And dear God, thank you for braving all that. You're welcome. That was Pat Chico. That wasn't me. The show was a hit in Australia and was sold back to the BBC, where it aired on BBC One Thursdays at 525 from February 25th to April 1st, 1965. But it was never repeated. And season two didn't even get an airing. So what happened? I don't know. What did happen with this show? It's Australia, so... I mean, it got a second series, right? So unless it had some success. It did have a success. It was a really big show in Australia, but I guess it was lost in translation when it went to the UK. I guess people couldn't, you know, follow the story. I watched all of the episodes. By the way, all 12 episodes have been digitally remastered and are available officially for free on the ABC's iView channel on YouTube. It's really something. Oh, yeah, it's kind of a chore to get through. But... This show was a bit of pioneering science fiction in that uh, G.K. Saunders, who wrote it, devised a special language that the aliens spoke amongst themselves and, like, shows like Star Trek, Babylon 5, Battlestar Galactica, aliens were known for speaking English with a foreign accent. 
Adam affects a sort of German, French, Swiss dialect whenever he's speaking English to everybody. And this leads to the children's father's initial assumption that he is from Switzerland. Hence the name Adam Sweeze. The show was also made in cooperation with CSIRO, which is the Commonwealth Scientific and Industrial Research Organization. So basically the collection of Neil deGrasse Tyson types, Isaac Asimov types. They provided knowledge and the park's observatory for all of the production. In fact, they consulted on the design of the alien spacecraft that lands on the steps of the Sydney Town Hall where the aliens are greeted by the Prime Minister, played by a guy by the name of Chips Rafferty. Chips Rafferty? Chips Rafferty, called the living symbol of the typical Australian. His career stretched from the late 1930s until his death in 1971. He was in the 1962 remake of Mutiny on the Bounty, starring Marlon Brando. Oh. Well, that's pretty much it. It had a following to the point where they made a novelization of the show in Australia. And that was it. I mean, they tried to uh, sell it back to the BBC and it just disappeared. It was almost to the point of being a completely lost series, not because the shows were wiped or disposed of, but because it was forgotten, when in 2019, the ABC took all 12 episodes of the show, digitally remastered them, cleaned them up, and this is according to the ABC's Retro Focus service, archived by John Steiner and Helen Meany, They took all 12 episodes, cleaned them up, digitally remastered them, digitally restored them, and put them all on their official YouTube page. So thanks to the ABC in Australia, future generations can, I guess, watch Australia's attempt at Doctor Who with Blackjack and Hookers. It is definitely a capsule of its time, The Stranger. Yes, it was. And I'll tell you right now, the, some of the special effects definitely looked like they were from a public television broadcast. Oh, definitely. Well, the original Doctor Who, the sets and the special effects looked like they were done on a budget of 100 quid. Because they probably were. It's the BBC. Once they realized Doctor Who was a cash cow, they could put some money into it. So, yeah, they probably did have a budget of about 100 pounds back in, like, 63, 64, 65. But ultimately, were it not for some enterprising folks at the ABC digitally remastering it and put it on YouTube, this show would have been a forgotten thing on TV. But to tie it back to the theme month, did you know, guys, that there was a series of movies titled The Stranger featuring Colin Baker in the title role. Yes, I do know this because now there's a complicated video about this series from 
Quentin reviews on YouTube about the history of this series. So I would highly recommend you search that out on YouTube. Search The Stranger Quentin Reviews, and it'll tell you the entire history behind the production company behind those videos. But, oh, they are something else. Perhaps a thing on TV for another day. I don't even think it made it to TV. I think it was all direct to video. Oh, they were all straight to video, baby. You think Nick Briggs wanted to be associated with that on TV? No. That was a bit of a deep dive into Australia's answer to Doctor Who and how you can watch it for free officially right now. But if you want to listen to more deep dives into television antiquities, it's as easy as going to It Was a Thing on TV where we have stories about 424 other subjects. We also have live watches, minisodes, instant reactions. I believe Greg actually had an instant reaction from, was it a Thursday night game a couple weeks ago, Greg? No, it was this past Sunday's, as of the time we're recording this game, between the Jets and the Giants. Which, guys... It was bad. It was bad. I'll was say terrible. that. It was the worst football game I've ever watched. I said it on the instant reaction. Even worse than the Monday night game between Pittsburgh and Miami we covered. Even worse than the Indianapolis-Denver Thursday night game we talked about. Oh, the only highlight of that game was maybe Thomas Morstead's punting. And, oh, the last 24 seconds of regulation, the Jets finally figure out, Oh, we shouldn't have Zach Wilson dink and dunk these passes. Let's just have him throw it deep. At least there was some passing in that game. Oh, let's not even get into the fact that Tommy DeVito had a touchdown with negative one yard passing. Yeah, I've seen a picture of Tommy DeVito. Looks like the Giants have a situation of their own. Oh, my ribs hurt even harder than Tyrod Taylor after hearing that joke. Good night, everybody. Hey, wow. Well, okay, you, you know you what? You two are on a hot streak. Yo, 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 yo. Before this goes any more off the rails, let's finish the finish, all right? We are on all social media, including Instagram, Threads, Mastodon, and it was a thing on TV, except for Facebook, where we are at It Was a Thing on TV podcast. Remember to subscribe to the podcast wherever fine podcasts can be streamed. Apple, TuneIn, iHeart, YouTube, where you can like and subscribe to our channel. And don't forget to hit the notification bell to be informed of all future uploads, including what's coming up on Thursday, which we previously alluded to earlier in this episode. So it's 1979. It's an anthology series. And it takes place on a train. But it's not that show. Oh. Well, that show wasn't an anthology. Well, kind of sort of was. Mm, It's debatable. Hold on. I got a question. Does any of the episodes feature people playing poker? No. Oh. Does the train have an onboard disco? Also, no. 
does Billy Barty and a magician try to replace a presidential candidate with a double so real that even Loretta Swit can't tell? Also, no. Okay, this is going to suck. Oh, you have no idea. Grab your tickets because we're going on a trip, people, next time on It Was a Thing on TV. Thank you so much for listening. Please be kind to one another, and we will see you for the next one. Row! Here's some ice cream cakes that only Carvel makes. They're made fresh every day because that's the Carvel way. And while you're at the store, see Cookie for some more. And don't forget about Hug Me the Bear. The friendliest bear. Your participating Carvel dealer also has Hug Me the Bear and Cookie Puss Dolls. You'll love them. Thank you. And when you're in Australia, mate, don't forget to get your Cookie Puss, mate. Please visit them. Thank you. Ding.